Jeremy, what are you allergic to? I've had the, the prick test. I'm allergic to like a lot of things, uh, but specifically your house and the cats that are in it. Uh, but I definitely get the, the whole, you know, spring, summer, fall ragweed, I think is my nemesis. I think if I ended up in like purgatory for the rest of my life, it would be ragweed and cats running around. Isn't ragweed just like the perfect name for that? Like, I don't even know what it's supposed to look like, but it just sounds awful. Like, it just sounds bad for you. Yeah. Yeah. My nose agrees. Yeah. It's, it's a ragweed. Um, <laughs> so, but better yet. Do you have do you ever have patients that it, when you ask them like hey uh you know like every time I'm about to give an injection uh, I ask like hey you know uh Dr. Allen what are you allergic to and I always have people that say like jokey like folksy things like hard work or like money like grandpa jokes do you ever get any of those Oh I totally get it especially around you know like we're recording the day after Father's Day here so there would have been a lot of uh, jokes on Friday about like uh you know, like doing things on Father's Day or yeah. <laughs> just like old cantankerous things. I just find that adorable and I like to collect those. <laughs> and then but, you shove a needle in their knee. Right. And then they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cute, cute, cute. Yeah, right. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, seasonal allergies or hay fever or allergic rhinitis, whatever you call it, it, it blows literally. And it's super common. In 2021, about uh, more than 81 million people in the U.S. were diagnosed with seasonal allergic rhinitis. Um, that was 26% of adults and 19% of children. According to the Allergy and Asthma Foundation of America, seasonal allergies cost about 3 to $4 billion in the U.S. annually. So indoor and outdoor allergies, you kind of named both of them there, Jeremy, unless you're hanging out with the outdoor cats that live in my neighborhood too. Um, they could lead to sinus irritation, itchy and watery eyes, nasal congestion and sneezing. Uh, many people with allergies often have more than one type. So most common indoor and outdoor allergy triggers are tree and grass and weed pollens like ragweed, mold spores, dust mites, cockroaches, cat and dog dander, and uh, rodent urine. We actually, oh. the dust mites and the cockroaches and stuff, that came up with our, um, like our air quality talk at, uh, mm -hmm. uh, with Brady Scott. So throwback. Um, those who have other conditions like asthma or heart and lung disease or other chronic illnesses can suffer more severe consequences to what we, meaning those without those conditions, might just consider annoying. So how can we avoid these symptoms? How can we treat them? And thankfully, meaningful research exists to provide helpful data on how to manage allergies. And double thankfully, we have a renowned expert in the field of allergy and immunology to help us understand more. Grab your tissues. Let's get started. Welcome to your doctor friends, the show that teaches you to sniff out the garbage and answers all the questions that you wish you could call or text your doctor friend. My name's Julie Bruni. And I'm Jeremy Allen. And we are two physicians who work at a nationally ranked practice and take care of some of the world's greatest athletes. We know that you have questions and we want to help. We want to be your doctor friends. So welcome back. Uh, I would love to welcome our renowned guest, Dr. Dave Stukas. Um, he let us know that Stukas rhymes with mucus, and I couldn't not repeat it. It's impossible. Uh, it's a, that's a good dad joke right there. Um, timely. Uh, so Dr. Stukas, or Dr. Dave, as his patients call him, is a clinical professor of pediatrics in the Division of Allergy and Immunology uh, at Nationwide Children's Hospital and the Ohio State University College of Medicine. He's also the director of the Food Allergy Treatment Center. He's very active on social media with at AllergyKidsDoc on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, 
Dr. Stukas, we are so happy to have you on the show. We love a disruptor who seems to thrive on calling out the misinformation in the media. So uh, thanks for fighting the good fight, my friend. And thanks for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. I have been itching to be a guest on your oh, show. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Perfect. This is a match made in heaven. <laughs> oh, God. You and Jeremy are going to get along swimmingly. Too good. <laughs> so, Dave, uh, give us your origin story. How did how'd you get here? Uh, so I am an, an academician through and through. I love working in academic pediatrics, and I love teaching and research and quality improvement and patient care and, and everything that goes along with that. And along those lines, I'm, I'm pretty involved with our professional organizations, um, in, in the allergy world, as well as the American Academy of Pediatrics, as well as some of the advocacy organizations. So I just, I just love trying to, you know, help patients, whether that's in the office in front of me or whether that's, you know, helping educate others on how they can take care of patients with allergies or just the general public. And then um, I sort of became very interested in these misconceptions because I kept hearing the same thing over and over again from all these patients and even referring physicians. And it's like, why are they asking these questions? And, um, you know, this goes back 15 years. And then I started actually doing some research on it, giving some presentations at our, at our national uh, conferences about how to combat misinformation. And then 11 years ago, my brother-in-law said, you know, Dave, you should go on Twitter with this. Yeah. Uh, at which point I said, what the heck is Twitter? Uh, and then I looked into that and I said, oh, this is a great platform to try to combat misinformation and, and try to put good in, evidence-based information out in the world. So I've been involved in social media on Twitter and Instagram uh, for the last decade or so. And uh, yeah, that's kind of how I got here, I guess. Dave, do you have a blue check mark? Is that, is that too rough, rough of a question to ask? No, I'm happy to. So huh, huh. I, I had a legitimate one um, yes. for six years. And then I am, no, I'm not paying $8 a month or whatever for the big check mark. <laughs> God bless you, sir. Um, all right. Well, let's break down uh, this, is, you know, your 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 area of expertise. So what 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 are allergies? What are they like talking about sort of seasonal allergies like we're staying on topic today? Yeah. Anything regarding allergy is an immune response. Uh, so it's the body's immune system basically forms these antibodies. They're called immunoglobulin E or IgE. Uh, that is directed towards whether it's inhalant allergens or venom or foods that we eat. Uh, and then when the body encounters that allergen in real life, the IgE binds to it, unlocks all the allergy cells, and then you have symptoms. Um, so allergy, it's really easy. And what, what I focus on when I try to diagnose this, we don't start with testing. We start with the history. So you come to me and you say, Dave, every time I eat this or every time I'm exposed to this, I have these symptoms. It should be cause and effect. It should be reproducible. So that's sort of the, the bottom line where we start with thinking about what allergies are. Do you often see that there's kind of like a, a dose dependent situation? So like, for example, literally just yesterday, I was in the car with my husband and we were talking about a friend of his growing up who every night would have a bowl of cereal, like as a child or not a bowl of cereal, I'm sorry. Every night he would have a bowl of ice cream and a glass of milk. This is a little bit different because it's not technically an allergy, but uh, the, he was fine. He did this kid did this for years. And all of a sudden one night he was just like, nope, boom, cannot tolerate it anymore. Had like horrible GI complaints. Like, do you ever see that it, things can sort of build up to become um, an actual symptomatic allergy? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And that sort of segues into what I love helping people figure out is let's clarify the diagnosis. Yeah. Because every symptom that can occur from allergies or allergic reactions can absolutely occur from non-allergic reasons. Mm. So, you know, the scenario you're describing is more of like an intolerance. So we see people with difficulty digesting foods. That's not an immune response. That absolutely can be more dose dependent. It may, you know, the, the classic story is lactose intolerance. Mm -hmm. I'm fine with a few bites of cheese here and there. But if I drink a glass of milk, I'm not going to feel very well because I'm going to have bloating or GI symptoms or stuff like that. 
With allergies, you can have a dose-dependent response as well. Uh, we see this all the time during pollen season, which mm. typically lasts for several months. Uh, the trees typically pollinate in the springtime. We have grasses and weeds in the summertime and then ragweed in the autumn until we get a frost. And there's mold out there whenever it's rainy and damp and things like that. And as the pollen levels kind of fluctuate, then uh, symptom severity can change as well. So yeah, you can see the dose-dependent response. I feel like allergies have become the new favorite uh, excuse for everybody when they have any sort of upper respiratory symptom yeah. post post and during pandemic. It's usually like a cough. Somebody looks at you funny and you're like, oh, it's allergies. Um, and so my question to you is, I I feel that seasonal allergies have been referenced more than in the past. I feel like I'm getting more and more questions about are the allergies bad this year? I feel like I'm getting all these symptoms and I have noticed more pollen on my car when it's sitting outside. But is it true that we actually are having a worse seasonal allergy season than previous years? Yeah. First, before I answer that, you gave me this horrific flashback. I had to develop this template for our division. It was the autumn of 2020. Mm. So the first year of the pandemic. And the letter was basically, um, no, I cannot provide a letter saying that it's your child's allergies that's causing them to cough. <laughs> you have to get tested for COVID. <laughs> oh my gosh, you got so many requests for that. So you're right. There's a lot of overlap here. Um, and the easy answer is yes. Uh, it used to be a running joke amongst allergists. This goes back 15 years of like, is this the worst pollen season ever? Yeah, it must be. Uh, well, it turns out it actually is. Uh, yeah. So there's something called climate change, uh, which is occurring. Um, Never heard and of it. Yeah. What it what it's doing is it's several things that really impact people with seasonal allergies. So one, pollen season is starting earlier in most places and it's lasting longer. So I live in central Ohio. Traditionally, trees don't start pollinating here till mid-March. We're seeing pollinate poll tree pollen season start in February. And it's lasting a lot longer. Um Second, we're actually seeing higher levels of pollen in the air as well, which is which are making symptoms even more severe. And then lastly, which is really interesting, we're seeing new species crop up in areas where they previously didn't um, grow. So for instance, ragweed was never found in Europe until the last 10, 15 years. And now people in Europe have to deal with ragweed allergy as well. Hmm. So yeah, the pollen seasons are getting worse and uh, it's causing a lot of misery. It's really interesting. One of the things I remember the most about my allergy education was the, like, the actual calendar aspect of it. Trees are here and grasses are here. And, and is that still applicable? Or is it kind of now become everywhere, everything because of this climate change stuff? It it, uh, it helps. Um, and what it really helps with is for those who have both allergies and non-allergic causes for symptoms. So for instance, asthma. Asthma affects hundreds of millions of people across the world. And spring and autumn are the typical times when exacerbations are more common. And we can really help people figure out, is it because of the pollen if you have allergies? Or is it more because of weather changes and viral infections? And that does alter the way we manage things and, and help them with uh, expectations. So what is that calendar? Tell me, when do these things happen? Well, it depends on where you live. So if you live in the southern uh, part of the United States or Florida, your trees are probably pollinating in January and they're going to you know, pollinate through April or May. But for the most part, you know, springtime is going to be tree pollen season. Grass is going to be typically you know, May through July. Ragweed's interesting because it's almost always mid-August um, because the, the cue for the ragweed plant to release pollen into the air and start to reproduce is really the amount of sunlight that we have. So uh, that one's pretty consistent. Uh, and that one's going to go until you get a, a hard frost. How do these symptoms usually present in kids? I know, Dave, you're, you're a pediatric allergist and immunologist. I'm assuming you're pretty much seeing all kids. Um, and are they often mistaken for other conditions? Kind of the flip-flop of what you just said. 
Yeah, it's so typically itch. So itch, 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 because histamine is one of the main chemicals that gets released from these allergy cells throughout our body. There's mast cells throughout all of our tissues. Uh, and then we have, um, you know, other cells in the circulation like basophils and things like that. But histamine makes people itch. So allergy almost always equals itch. Uh, from a nasal standpoint, you can have runny nose, you can have stuffy nose, you can have snot running down the back of your throat, that which can cause post-nasal drip and cough, especially at night, uh, itchy, watery eyes, you can have swelling of the eyelids and things like that. So we call that allergic conjunctivitis. So those are the main symptoms that people have from seasonal allergies. Now, a lot of those symptoms can occur for non-allergic reasons. So young children who have enlarged adenoids or non-allergic rhinitis can absolutely have stuffy noses, post-nasal drip. Uh, exposure to non-allergic irritants in the environment, such as uh, tobacco smoke, scented candles, essential oil diffusers, small particulates, um, you know, bathroom sprays, perfumes that can all irritate the the small nasal passageways of little ones. And there's a there's a misconception that allergy tests aren't reliable in young children, which is completely false. If you're old enough to have allergies, you're old enough to have a test that says that you do have allergies as the cause of your symptoms. The reason why they're often negative in infants is because we're testing them for the wrong thing. So when infants come in with stuffy noses or cough, it's really because they have environmental allergies, which don't develop until they're, you know, a couple of years old, usually. Uh, it's just, you know, they have other causes for their symptoms. Got it. That's an excellent point. To, to So what, what ages do allergies start? You said a couple of years, but like when, when, when can somebody legitimately have allergies? Well, we see food allergies develop in infants. So uh, more often than not, they actually occur early in life, but they can occur later on as well. From an environmental allergy standpoint, we typically don't see indoor allergies present until kids are about 12 months, maybe 15, 18 months at the earliest. And then for the outdoor pollen allergies or seasonal allergies, they have to be exposed for a couple of years. So the youngest I see is, you know, two turning on three uh, when they start to develop those symptoms. Uh, so that's how I sort of think through things. Awesome. You also mentioned the testing. Um, and I think that was an awesome transition there to talk about that for a second, because I think the natural instinct of most people is, I think I'm having allergies. Should I go get tested? So how do you respond to that? Yes. I, you know, testing is great. It's, it's the way to clarify what's the cause of your symptoms. So uh, I usually like to say, you know, for, as an allergist, I love seeing anybody to help them, you know, clarify the diagnosis, educate about uh, individualized management options and things like that. Uh, for pediatricians and, and primary care clinicians and things like that, they're very good at just sort of starting treatment. So if you come in with a story of, hey, I get itchy, watery eyes, sneezing for three months in the spring, you probably have tree pollen allergies. So we can, you know, they can start treatment. And then if things get, get more severe, they're not responding well to treatment or they want to figure things out, then come see us and we can do testing and things like that. And the testing we do, so there's no good screening test for allergies. We do get some false positives for various reasons. In the office, we do something called a skin prick test or a scratch test, where we take drops of the liquid allergen, whether it's, um, you know, inhalant allergens, cat dander, dog dander, dust mite, pollen, or foods. We place it on the back or the forearm. We gently scratch through the skin to introduce that allergen to those allergy cells that are sitting there. If that person has the allergy antibody attached to those cells, it unlocks it and releases histamine, and histamine causes a hive. So the size of that little hive that occurs within 15 minutes tells us the likelihood that that person is allergic. Um, as I mentioned, we get a lot of false positives. We tend to believe the negative results, though. And then we also have blood testing where we can measure levels of, the, of those IgE directed towards the allergens in the blood. Same, same rules apply. Not a good screening test. Lots of false positives. So we don't want to just do a bunch of testing and then diagnose based upon that. We really want to focus on what the history is and then use that to help guide the testing. Have you ever been tested? No, I haven't. Yeah. Um, so if you do have allergies... Yeah, if you do actually have some allergies and you get the skin prick testing, which I have had, and I don't remember the last time I was definitely younger, uh, it, it is a day of itch, as Dave, Dave mentioned. <laughs> it's like wherever they put it, you're just, I feel itchy. 
<laughs> yeah, it, it can be miserable for people with a lot of allergies. So, you know, we can always give them some antihistamines and, and stuff like that. But yeah, it's it's not always the most comfortable experience. Yeah. The the test itself doesn't hurt to, to put people listening. Sure. Like he, he said, you sort of scratching and I don't want people to get scared about going to get the test because the, the, the test doesn't hurt. But if you do have allergies, you're getting the allergy yeah. kind of looks like for someone like me who definitely has the cats and the and the ragweed going, like it looked like I had some cupping marks going on my back. But it's ever <laughs> seen a cut, you know, like pretty good stuff. Yikes. Well, once you've gotten all this testing done and now you've helped to clarify someone's diagnosis of what really they're having an allergic response to, what are your treatment recommendations? Can you walk us through just sort of some generalized protocols that you would put somebody through? Like, so for example, Jeremy comes in, you do much testing on him. His forearm blows up uh, like a couple little, you know, uh, little golf balls all over there. Um, so what would you what would you counsel Jeremy specifically then there? Yeah. Uh, for, first and foremost, caution at the over the counter pharmacy shelf. My goodness, mm -hmm. they, they, they combine terrible treatment options with legitimate good treatment options. And it's it's almost impossible to tell the difference of what's what. So uh, it's always helpful to talk to your own personal doctor or even the pharmacist to really think through what these different treatments do. So if we start with non-medicine treatments, uh, there's a lot of great things that can help. So nasal saline sprays are wonderful or artificial tears to help soothe, you know, irritated nasal passageways in the mucosa and the lining of the eyes and things like that. There's even these sinus rinses that people really love if you have lots of sinus infections where you actually um, you squirt pressurized saline, um, hopefully sterile saline. So you want to use distilled water, never tap water. Uh, and it actually goes up through your sinus cavities and pulls out all the, all the junk and it can make you feel a lot better. Um, so those are some great non-medicated ways to to kind of soothe those irritated uh, passageways. But then when we start thinking about medicine, it all depends on what your symptoms are. By far the most effective medication for anybody, regardless of your nasal symptoms, whether it's itching, sneezing, stuffy nose, or runny nose, daily nasal steroid sprays. So these are over-the-counter and also prescription. Uh, they have to be used every day consistently to offer the most benefit. And ideally, we would start them at least two weeks before the onset of pollen season. So if you wait until you're absolutely miserable in the middle of spring, there's not a whole lot we can do for you um, that's going to make you feel better right away. So this is a, a long-term consistent treatment. That's the best way to treat nasal symptoms. There are other nasal sprays that work well also. Um, these are nasal antihistamines that you can get through, uh, through prescription, which can relieve some of that itching and stuffy nose as well. There's a lot of misconceptions with the oral medicine. So we have a lot of different liquids and pills that we can take, and these are generally antihistamines. First and foremost, I strongly recommend throwing away your old first-generation antihistamines like diphenhydramine or Benadryl. These are outdated. They have a very short duration of action, tons of terrible side effects. We simply have better options available. So second generation antihistamines like cetirizine or fexofenadine, these are really good for itching and sneezing. They're not going to help stuffy noses. So if your nose is truly congested and you have snot running down your throat, you're not going to fix that by treating anything through the mouth. You have to go right to the nose. And then we have a, a whole bunch of different types of eye drops. We generally want to avoid vasoconstrictors. So Afrin, uh, we don't want to use in the nose because you can actually become addicted to it. Over time, the effect wears off and it causes a condition called rhinitis medicamentosa, which leads you to use it more and more and more. Same thing with visine in the eyes. We don't want to do that. We actually want to treat what's causing the symptoms. So there's different types of eye drops that can either block the histamine or, or stabilize those mast cells. So those are some of the more common treatments that, that people can use. Jeremy, what's your cocktail during allergy season? I want to know what yours is. I'll tell you mine. Dr. Dr. Dave's going to be very happy with me. I use my nasal steroid every single day and I also use it throughout the year. So one follow-up question I had for you, Dave, is for somebody like myself who even in December sometimes notices he has some seasonal allergies, what is, what is giving me my allergies? 
Uh, well, if it's in December, it's probably not anything outside. So right. uh, it may either be some indoor allergies that you have, or it just could be a viral infection or something like that. Uh, yeah. And that's the nice thing about nasal steroid sprays. They don't care why your nose is stuffy and, and irritated. It just kind of calms <laughs> down. Yeah, I did. I did find that I, I have a I, dust and I don't get along very well yeah. either. So that's why I use my near round. But I did try to get to it before the spring. Climate change has really screwed with my nasal spray usage, too, because sometimes I'll go down to one spray uh, per nostril uh, when I'm doing pretty well. But then sometimes, you know, now that like February, we'll start to see some pollen show up for some random reason in Chicago because of warmer weather. And, uh, you know, I wasn't ready for it. But um, one other follow up question I had to you. So someone like myself, again, who's been using these nasal spray steroids for a long time, is there any long term side effects or concerns of taking those? Yeah, these actually went over the counter. Oh, my gosh, it's been I don't maybe eight or nine years. Um, so that's how safe they are. Uh, we do want to use proper technique because the most common side effect can be irritation of the nasal septum in the middle part of the nose. So whenever you put the nose spray in, you always want to direct towards the ear on the same side. And you don't have to do like this huge sniff and snort so you suck it through the back of your nose. It's really like kind of leaning forward and a gentle coordination of you. You push in on the spray as you gently sniff uh, towards the outside part of the nose. And that's generally uh, the way to avoid any long-term side effects. And then of course, we always do worry about um, steroids, especially in young kids. But, you know, the dose that we're giving through nasal steroids is generally very low, much, much, much lower than you get through oral steroids like prednisone. But we do have to, you know, monitor those kids, especially if they're already taking inhaled steroids for asthma and they have topical steroids for eczema. And a lot of these allergic conditions kind of uh, run in the same person. So that's something that we keep an eye on. The, the over-the-counter box a lot of times uh, has a dosage on it. Sometimes that's not the dosage a doctor would recommend for the nasal steroids. Is that dosage pretty pretty standard on the on the over-the-counter for our listeners? Yeah, for the most part, it's usually either one to two sprays each nostril per day. We generally don't go higher than that. If, if we need to go higher than that, we start talking about other treatment options. And actually, I'll build upon that because if you look at the box, I get these questions all the time like, oh, the box says that I can't use this in less than this age for like antihistamines and things like that. The dose we use for allergies is almost never what's on the actual side of the box, uh, but it has been well you know, studied in, in um, you know, different research trials and things like that. So more often than not, we need to, you know, people are miserable, so we need to give them a little higher dose to help make them more comfortable. Gotcha. I have one more uh, uh, question about the, uh, the nasal steroids that I am totally blanking on. So Julie, what do you use for your cocktail? <laughs> I, I use flutecasone nasal spray and I use it year round. I also have five cats that I'm probably a little, at least a little bit allergic to, and I love them, but you cannot suck up all the fur and dander, even if you vacuum every single day. Um, and then I do ketotifen eye drops because I get a lot of eye, uh, like watering itchiness. As soon as I walk outside the door, I think it's just even, I might just have like more just general watery eyes. So my eyes tend to water a lot anyway, but they get really itchy. So I do ketotifen eye drops probably, I don't know, as needed. Um, it's like an antihistamine eye drop. And then I do cetirizine every day. So I've got a good cocktail. I've got oral, oral nasal and ophthalmic uh, uh, coverage there. We need to get you allergy testing to see how much the cats are causing. You got five cats in there and you're like, what do you think I'm going to do with it, Jeremy? What do you think uh, I'm going to do? Get rid of them? No, no, no. Because no, our podcast uh, background would be boring if there weren't cats going back and forth. <laughs> Yeah, nobody today. I, I remember my comment. Uh, so the uh, Dr. Dave already mentioned that the steroids don't work overnight. I just wanted to reemphasize that, mm -hmm. that, yeah. that you have to use them probably somewhere between three and seven days, if I'm not mistaken, before you actually can start to see a benefit. So I, I have heard a lot of people who take it for a few days and they're like, it didn't work. So I moved on. And you're mm -hmm. like, oh, you got to stick with it. 
Yeah, non-adherence with nasal, there's multiple reasons why. One, it's just hard to do anything every day. Uh, we generally recommend, uh, you know, it's basically what we're trying to do is form new habits, uh, which takes about 30 days of consistent behavior change before a new habit develops, whether you're, you know, your exercise regimen or using a nose spray. So I generally recommend storing it um, out in the open so you don't have to open up a medicine cabinet or open up a drawer. Uh, generally, if you put it by your toothbrush, assuming that people brush their teeth every day, that's usually a good reminder. Uh, I have had to learn, I've learned to ask that question of, do you brush your teeth every day? And I get interesting answers, but uh, yeah. <laughs> Dur during our New Year's resolution series, we did talk about habit stacking and habit. Yeah. Uh, what was the other one? Habit stacking and habit uh, tracking, uh, tracking or something yeah. like that. So yeah, there but was yeah, a bunch of things. yeah the exactly what you just said was stacking was basically taking something you do every single day mm -hmm. and putting your new behavior attached to it, and then mm -hmm. yeah. they become associated. So that that's a good point. What about uh, allergy shots? Um, talking about different treatment protocols, uh, you know, I, I think we've all known somebody who's who's experienced those. I haven't done those. Jeremy, have you had allergy shots? You know, it's funny. I had them when I was younger. Um, mm. I don't remember how old I was, and I I feel like I finished them. And but the, the what I remember is actually I had them prescribed to me again when I was in college, and I got through the regimen a little bit, and then I had to go from college to home, I think, and they stayed out of the freezer or fridge for too long, and then they weren't good anymore, and that was the last time I had allergy shots, probably because my parents didn't want to pay for them again. <laughs> so, yes, so now we're talking about immunotherapy, and, yeah. uh, you know, allergy injections uh, have been around for, like, 110 years, so yeah. this is not new, um, and with immunotherapy of any kind, whether you're uh, using an injection through an allergy shot, there's also sublingual drops you can put on the tongue. And there's different FDA tablets as well for things like grass and ragweed um, and uh, dust mite, actually. So there are different ways to sort of introduce allergens to the immune system. And the principles of desensitization are really, let's give your body very, very small amounts of what you're allergic to. Let's build it up gradually over time until you reach this maintenance dose. And then over time, uh, generally after years of treatment, your body's immune response changes. So all those IgE antibodies we talked about before that cause allergy symptoms start to actually go down a little bit. And we see a rise in these IgG protective antibodies. So we are actually changing the immune response. So I, I, my advice generally is, you know, does everybody need allergy shots? Absolutely not. I mean, it's a, it's a regimen. You have to go to the, they have to be given in the physician's office because there is a risk for causing an allergic reaction. So it's, it's a 30 minute commitment, a 30 minute commitment. Every time you get your shot, you generally get weekly buildup injections for about six months. And then you go to a, uh, you transition to a maintenance dose, which is generally once a month uh, for at least three to five years. So we want to, you know, it's, it's a big commitment for people to, to think about, but if you're truly miserable and despite taking medications, avoidance measures, and this is typically people with terrible spring allergies, they can't go outside because their eyes are swollen shut. Uh, I mean, this can really impact sleep, quality of life. It's a leading cause of missed school days, missed work. Uh, people can really suffer from this. So if, if anybody out there listening, if that's you, please go see a board-certified allergist and talk about long-term options such as allergy shots or drops under the tongue that can make you feel a lot better. I don't feel like those sublingual and the tablets were available or capsules were available when I was younger and maybe dating myself. Maybe they were and just weren't being used a lot. But how effective are those compared to the shots? Well, they've been used in Europe for decades. Uh, here in the United States, they, the FDA approval is only in the last five to six years. Um, and, you know, as with anything in medicine, there's sort of like an evidence-based ba way of doing things. And then there's kind of a, a non-evidence-based way of doing things. Like I hear horror stories of people being treated with allergy shots for 40 years, that's generally not necessary. It's either going to do its job or it's not. 
Uh, same thing with drops under the tongue. People kind of make up their own concoctions that don't really have concentrations that do much to the immune system. So always proceed with caution. That's why that, that board certification uh, in front of the allergist name is, is generally helpful because that means that we've at least gone through some vetting process to, to show some uh, at least basic fund of knowledge. <laughs> I feel um, like uh, the next section is like Dave's like I know I'm so MO excited. Here, so and you may yeah, this is this is good. Julie did a good job here. Thank you, Jeremy. You're welcome. Yeah, well, I I played I played to everybody's strengths here, and well, yeah, well, Dr. Stukas, I mean, clearly it it's when you were talking a little bit about your origin story of why, or first, like why you decided to get on Twitter and kind of talk about some of these debunking misinformation and myths. It's it really sounds very similar to. The conversation that Jeremy and I had before we decided to start the podcast, it was like, goodness gracious, we seem to um, to field a lot of the same questions, especially in the field of sports medicine and orthopedics about things yeah, that are not necessarily true or a little bit true um, or maybe too good to be true um, that we would hear day in, day out from patients. And it was just like, is there a better way that I could disseminate this information? We could do it. And, and that's sort of how your doctor friends was was born. So I think we we have similar values. Uh, uh, this is a great, great collaboration today. So I would love to hurl some myths and misinformation about allergies towards you, and then you can help bunk or debunk them if you if you would uh, entertain that. Yeah, let me get my baseball bat ready to. Okay, <laughs> I love it. Let's do it. Jeremy, why don't you start? Because I want you to, you can pick whatever your favorite ones are. Well, I like the first one because it reminds yeah. me of myself. But so. Kids are definitely, they, they all grow out of allergies, right? You just grow out of these things? Uh, yes and no. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> things can change in, with the immune system over time. In general, boys tend to have more allergies in regards to prevalence than girls early mm -hmm. in life. And that switches through adolescence. So there's hormonal influences that we don't fully understand. And there's a lot of younger children that actually do get better as they go through adolescence. But no, there's a lot of people out there as well that just suffer throughout, throughout their lives, unfortunately. Hand raised. Yeah. <laughs> So th yeah, so the other one is allergies are just for kids. No, and uh, adults uh, can develop new allergies as well. This is a fascinating area that we have mm. really no good understanding of. Um, it's there's an interesting phenomenon with women during pregnancy. Uh, so if they have pre-existing allergies or asthma, it's like a third, a third, and a third. A third just stay the same and they're completely fine. A third, their symptoms are completely out of control during the pregnancy state. And the only treatment is delivering the parasite out of their body. So once the baby's born, uh, their symptoms go back. Uh, and then a third actually get a lot better. Um, so yeah, there's so many different influences on, on this. But no, adults uh, can develop new allergies later in life as well. Bringing up pregnant people, can you give an overview of what treatments are safe and effective for people who are pregnant? Yeah, a lot of the same medicines we use uh, do have indications for safety in pregnancy, but we, we have a more of a narrow list. Mm -hmm. uh, so there is just specific types of um, steroids that we can use both intranasally or inhaled for people with asthma. Mm -hmm. There's specific antihistamines. So we always want to make sure we check that pregnancy class label. Uh, but no, we can offer a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, options. But again, for some of them, it's just so awful. And it's so, it, I mean, from a scientific standpoint, it's really fascinating, but they, they're truly miserable for nine months and then they're fine once the baby's out. My understanding of that process, and please tell me if I'm wrong, because that's how I learn. How else will I learn, Dr. Dave? Uh, that the concept behind that broadly is that when somebody's pregnant, they're trying to make themselves more hospitable to a parasite <laughs> ah. or to an, yeah, another sort of foreign thing living in their body. So 
because of that, they may be more or less sensitized to other allergens. Does that make, does that theory hold water at all? Like, is there, or give me the actual (laughs) reasoning why people who are pregnant may have much more severe or different allergy symptoms. Uh, I think I'll answer by saying I've, that's an interesting explanation that I've never heard before. Okay, Uh, good. So no. Put it on Twitter. Put it on Twitter, Julie. Taking it with grace. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to come at you. But it, it's not so much that they develop new allergies sure. it's those who have pre-existing. And what happens, it's more from a physiologic standpoint, right? So think about the circulating blood volume, which, you know, I, I can't remember the statistics. You know, you like increase your blood volume by a certain amount. Sure. You get vasodilation throughout the body. So if you have somebody with who already has rhinitis or um, nasal congestion, and then they're already increasing their blood volume and their vasodilation. It's going to make it a thousand times worse inside yeah. their nose. Uh, same thing with inside the lungs if they're, you know, having contributing factors for uh, bronchoconstriction and stuff like that. So I think it's more just the hormonal influences on the yeah. physiology is what tends to make things worse. But your theory is is um, is not uh, good. In- it's very interesting. It's interesting. Thank you, Dr. Day. That was very diplomatic. <laughs> he's, he's entertaining you. Yes. So um, one of the things that I feel like you could actually a plug and play, not just allergies, but almost any um, uh, recent condition into is the whole like, you know, 50 years ago, it wasn't like this. And we're all just getting more allergic to all these things. And it's because we're being exposed to X, Y, and Z and, and, and there's all the problems in the world. So are we actually different now? Are we allergic to more things? And if so, why or why not? Uh, so that one's real. Yeah. So there, there's a lot to this. I'll, I'm going to start by saying there's no single answer. So whatever you, whatever clickbait headline you read that, you know, this is the reason why more people have allergies. It's not true. It's, it's multifactorial. Yes. Um, there's a, a theory called the hygiene hypothesis, which has been shown across the world, which is basically um, when babies are born into farming environments where they're exposed to farm animals and dirt and microbes and, um, you know, endotoxins that they are less likely to develop allergies. So we don't see a lot of allergies in, uh, you know, Africa or India or uh, even in the Amish population, mm. whereas as society has moved towards cleaner environments, our immune systems aren't being exposed to all those different microbes and endotoxins from an early age, which is interesting because when babies are born into homes that already have dogs or cats present, they're less likely to develop allergies as they get older. So there's some exposure and it's not exposure yeah. to the dog dander. It's probably because that dog eats their own poop or drinks out of the yeah. toilet and then licks the baby's face. <laughs> yeah. So it's yeah. So it it it. As we become cleaner, um, our immune systems have no longer been challenged, and then it kind of gets bored and they develop allergies. So that is true, and and that's been shown across population studies in regards to increased prevalence of allergic rhinitis, food allergies, asthma, things like that. So, But again, there's no easy answer for this. And one last thing along those lines is there's a, a very strong genetic predisposition. So as more and more allergic people are having uh, babies together, then their, their kids are sort of programmed uh, to go along that allergic pathway. And then early life exposures probably turn some of those genes on. So then they become allergic as well. Gotcha. I'll be very interested to see the people doing research on this, how the pandemic affected it, because I feel like all of my patients now, including friends and family too, are now even more germaphobes than they used to be, right? Mm-hmm. There's so much concern for exposure to yeah. any sort of anything. And I would be interested to know if now we're going to see another spike in allergies because these kids came into the world in which like they couldn't be exposed to even other people for a while. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. The, the, uh, so there's a lot of conspiracy theories, of course, as, as you're sure. well aware, but the anti-mask crowd contingent use that as the excuse for why we shouldn't be wearing masks during the earlier stages of the pandemic, because they said we were going to cause more allergies and stuff, which, yeah. uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, t- it will find out over time, I suppose, but uh, everything's with risk benefit, right? 
Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm not sure a good reason to allow people to die more, but right. it will be <laughs> interesting to see if we had more allergies. Right. Yes. So are there right. consequences to not treating my allergies outside yeah. of my nuisance symptoms that I have? It's more comfort. It's a comfort level, right? So I, I like to say this for especially adolescents who refuse to use medication or for whatever reason. I say, well, that's fine, you know, but you're not allowed to complain about it. Uh, like we have options available, but and sure. if you choose not to do them for whatever reason, that's okay. Um, yeah. Uh, one, can, I, can I talk about one of my favorite studies of all time? Yes. Um, okay. So the Binky study. Um, so they took infants uh, and, you know, Binkies are pacifiers and, you know, our babies, uh, they always spit them out and they fall on the ground. So they were they randomized to two groups. Uh, one group, the parent took their child's binky and put it in their own mouth to clean it and then popped it back in their their mouth, the baby's mouth. And the other group cleaned it off or get, got them a new binky. And they found that the group uh, where the parents put their binky in their own mouth and then popped it back in, they were less likely to develop things like eczema and allergies uh, later in life. Uh, so I love that because, um, you know, it's just... I mean, we, it's okay to let our kids get exposed to things and yeah. you can rub a little dirt on it and we don't have to be so, you know, hyper sanitized all the time. Yeah. And I think people have shifted and they're sort of almost afraid of the wrong things in our environment in some yeah. ways. Yeah. So, all right. Thanks for letting me go on that diet. No, I love that. <laughs> well, it's name just... says go roll around in the dirt and lick stuff. Yeah. yeah. It's a fine balance, right? Because yeah. I think I think one of the things that we've hit on in the last couple of minutes is like, yeah, you should be getting exposed to things. You know, our kids go to daycare, they get they get stuffed and that stuff is actually not bad. But at the end of the day, also, when something comes around that is really bad and is killing people, maybe we should also try to follow guidelines and make sure that we're not exposing people unnecessarily. And it's this fine balance of being in the middle that I think, let you know, continues to lead to a lot of confusion and misinformation because you're on one end, you hear somebody saying, yeah, you need to be exposed to things. And then on the other end, you hear like, no, don't expose people. And it doesn't it's actually a dichotomy, right? It's Right. It's in some situations, yes, and in some situations, no. But again, we live in a world, especially the world that you live in on these social media sites where it's like, mm -hmm. no, I said something. So it has to be dogma on one end versus dogma on the other end. Yeah. Yeah. There's uh, little room for nuance on social media, but our world is filled with nuance. Yes. 100%. Well, oh. you should write that down. Write that down. That's, again. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's the new, that's the new <laughs> sub podcast. Uh, like your doctor friends. The, the world, world of nuance. nuance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> world of nuance. It's absolutely true, though. And that's why we choose to continue studying to continue our education in these fields is because there is so much nuance to it. And if everything was as simple as doing a Google search, then everybody would be healthy and there wouldn't be any problems, you know. And so it's the continued seeking of what the answers are and maybe not being satisfied with a very surface level response um, that you know, is our calling. That's why we wait, why we choose to be scientists and physicians, because we want to keep learning more and be able to disseminate that, disseminate that information out to everybody else so that we can all feel better and be healthier and help. live. Okay. And help, yeah, help each other. So, yeah. Are there any like myths it. or misinformation or like myths that you can think Dave, that we haven't said that in this world that are some of your, you had a favorite study. I didn't know if you had a favorite myth. Yeah. Well, how much time do we have? All Two the and time a half in hours, the world, man. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy edits this, so you can talk forever. Oh, oh, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's something called the Choosing Wisely series. I don't know if you're familiar with this. Yeah. So this is yeah. So through the American Board of Internal Medicine, they partner with like 60 subspecialties, and each of them has like top 10 list of things that we're doing wrong in medicine, both for physicians and for patients. Uh, so I encourage everybody to check out the Choosing Wisely series for whatever specialty. So in the allergy world. 
uh, there's a couple of big ones. So one, um, penicillin allergy is not nearly as common as people think it is. So 10% of the general population will raise their hand and they'll say, I'm allergic to penicillin, but 95% of those same people are not actually allergic to penicillin. Uh, and this goes back to on, on our end, just poor understanding from healthcare professionals about what is a true allergy, uh, even for people with legitimate allergies to penicillin when they're younger, that tends to go away as they get older. But, you know, there's very common delayed onset rashes that kids get when they're taking amoxicillin penicillin. That's not an allergic reaction. They can often get it again and nothing happens. Uh, so for anybody out there who thinks that they have a penicillin allergy, please get evaluated because more often than not, you're not actually allergic. And that opens it up. It's a great antibiotic for some yeah, of the more yeah, common yeah. infections that we see, like strep throat and things like that. Um, shellfish allergy is not a reason to avoid contrast media. Mm. So this one was made up by uh, physicians like 50 years ago. And there are still major hospitals that ask people before they get a CT scan or an MRI, are you allergic to shellfish? There's absolutely no correlation whatsoever. Um, this, this goes back to the misunderstanding that iodine, they thought iodine was the cause, but it's mm. not. People with allergic reactions to shellfish are reacting to the muscle protein. It has nothing to do with iodine. Just because iodine happens to be present in both of those things doesn't mean that those dots connect. By the way, we all have iodine in our bodies, and it's virtually impossible to become allergic to iodine. Uh, another common one I hear is that strawberry is a common cause of allergy. It is not. Uh, strawberries, tomatoes, citrus are common causes of non-allergic rashes on the face when babies start eating them and they start rubbing them all over their skin. But it's a very uncommon cause of true fruit allergy. So I hear parents every week they come in and say, well, we haven't fed strawberries yet because we know it's a, it's a common cause of allergy. Um, so those are some of the bigger ones, I guess. I don't know. Is, have you heard of anything else that you wanted to? No, but I love, I love I think... those. That's really good, Dave. I think you've you've done a good job of teasing another episode in which you'll have to come back and we'll do food allergy uh -huh. because yes. we can't we can't hit all allergy in one episode. Unfortunately, yeah. we could, but nobody would listen and we would lose our day jobs because um, we would all be here forever. <laughs> um, but that that food allergy is probably maybe the I would imagine probably more commonly asked about than than seasonal allergies because there was pollen all over our cars and because yes. everybody was talking about it. We went seasonal, but I think talking about food allergy in the future is going to be awesome. And hopefully yeah. we have engaged you enough to where you'd want to do it again. I would love that. Yes. And you're right there. I mean, that's a whole other conversation. And there are so many misconceptions about food allergy and uh, management and risk and everything like that. Yeah. So yeah, let's do it. Dave, are you, do you, is there anything that you're excited about or anything cool on the horizon regarding like allergy prevention or allergy treatment or anything that you're like, Ooh, like what's the, the what's the juicy spill the tea for us? What's going on? Yeah, so we don't have much in the way of prevention for things like environmental yeah. allergies and uh, and asthma. There's a lot of interesting uh, research in the microbiome, but that is such mm -hmm. a, a quagmire of uh, lots of associations so far. We're nowhere near where we can say you, you should take this prebiotic, probiotic, whatever for treatment or prevention, although there's a lot of internet websites that will tell you otherwise. Mm -hmm. But no, we're not quite there. But that's going to lead us somewhere okay. um, at some point. But in regards to prevention with food allergy, we actually do have um, very good recommendations. We used to say avoid giving babies allergenic foods like no milk until one, no eggs till two, no peanuts or, or seafood until they're three. If you're pregnant or breastfeeding, don't eat any of these foods. All of that in, uh, advice was completely wrong. Uh, that goes back 20 years. 
Uh, so over the last, oh my gosh, it's been almost 10 years now, we actually have very good evidence uh, in these prospective trials where we actually, uh, people have um, given babies allergenic foods such as peanut butter and egg and dairy and things like that early on around four to six months of age. And if you keep it in the diet consistently, that's our best way to actually prevent food allergies from developing. So that's the message that we want to get out there. Uh, and we've been working with general pediatricians and uh, in, in the allergy world to try to get um, parents to, to better understand why it's uh, not only helpful, but also very safe to do. So yeah, that's the exciting area in regards to true primary prevention. But other than that, we're still a little ways away from, from some of these other allergic conditions. And anecdotally, I'm an addict of peanut butter. So both of my kids got peanut butter <laughs> incredibly early on in their lives to make sure that we could have some peanut butter in the house because I, I may have had to make a separate wing of peanut Fast. butter if, it, if there was an allergy. So I can speak to the anecdotal evidence in my house that that was beneficial. Any resources for people? You talked about choosing wisely, which by the way, you can re uh, reference as a patient or a uh, average person. That is not just for doctors. In fact, it probably is actually more for the general public to even know that what the doctors are doing and trying to change. Um, I know in sports medicine, one of the ones is all like, don't MRI back pain at all. Mm -hmm. um, and so like as a patient, if you could read that and understand kind of like why we think it's not a good idea to do the back pain uh, MRI, that, that's helpful information. Any other resources you point people to for allergies? Yeah, I think uh, as always, just go to the vetted professional and advocacy organizations. Uh, there's so much information out there online, uh, and it's easy to get caught up in uh, non-evidence-based circles. So uh, from an allergy standpoint, we have the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. Uh, there's uh, European societies, and you know they're, they're great. And there's a ton of advocacy organizations as well. So they all have medical and scientific advisors on their on their boards before they put anything on their website. They want to make sure they vet it and and that it's true. So yeah, stick with you know stick with the vetted resources. Um, that's where all the good quality information is. We try to put some in our show notes, so we'll we'll put some like uh, of those uh, uh, societies in in the show notes for people so they can click and and at least maybe bookmark those if they have a, an interest. Yeah, thank you. Oh, yeah, I'll definitely do that. Uh... Dr. Dave Stukas, how can people reach you? Tell us again your your handles and all that. I know we said it before, but let's say it again. Yeah, so I'm I'm on Twitter and Instagram at allergykidsdoc. Uh, so I would love for people to to follow. I haven't been nearly as active on Twitter ever since the algorithms got changed because yeah. it has altered the experience yeah. for a lot of us. Sure. Uh, and I do tend to take uh, some breaks from my own. Uh, wellness and, and mental health Smart. from time to time. But yeah, no, I, I, I'm out there and I uh, try my best to put out some good information and just like what we talked about today. So I really appreciate you having me on. Yeah, this has been great. Another anecdotal story. Dr. Dave is a, a wonderful follow on Instagram for those uh, who are not following him. He uh, not only puts out wonderful information, but sometimes dances and does funny things and yeah. uh, has, has yeah, he's, he's just, he's a really, really good follow. So I would encourage you to do that. It's, it's kind of how we got connected for this. So Please, uh, you know, at the end of the episode, go follow uh, at, at Allergy Kids Doc. Um, don't pay too much attention to the food allergy stuff before that episode comes out. So you're really interested in that. And then you can follow everything. <laughs> Sequester yourself from this. Yeah. <laughs> so just, just follow me, but don't look at anything. Yeah. No, yeah, not, not yet. Not you can you can look at anything that says seasonal allergies. You know? <laughs> don't you learn anything? <laughs> Uh, oh, and then, uh, by the way, for anybody out there who does follow me, thank you very much. But uh, don't send me pictures of your rash or your child's rash through mm. direct messages. Um, it's really Such a good point. and gross, and uh, that happens more often than I, I like. So just send him a bill. <laughs> <laughs> Not only that, I just don't want to see it. Like, it's yeah, so it's weird. No, thanks. Yeah. Oh, God, that's funny. I, I wouldn't even have thought of that. But of course, yeah. Oh, God, that's great. 
All right. Well, don't get caught in evidence-based circles. Consider seeing an allergist to clarify the cause. And don't get itchy. And listen to your doctor friends. <laughs> the amazing music is credited to Skillcell with Pixabay licensure. The podcast is meant for educational and entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast should not be taken as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Please consult a medical professional for any medical issues that you may be having. The contents of this podcast are the opinions of the hosts only and do not reflect the opinions of their employers or affiliations. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall Dr. Julie Bruni or Dr. Jeremy Allen or any guest to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast.